Amen. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 5. Yesterday, I got to take my kids to Lost Creek Lake, which I never really understood the name until I was there, and I realized they lost the lake, and it's just a creek. <laughs> like, it is dry. So I tell my kids, oh, we're going to go to Lost Creek Lake, and all they hear is lake. And so my daughter, who's five, she puts on her bathing suit underneath her clothes and, like, is so excited. When we get there, there's mud that comes all the way up to their knees, and the water is scuzzy and green, and they're like, thanks, Dad. So... We end up taking them to the dam, which the, all the coldest water from the lake comes out, and at least they got to play in some running water. So we bring them down there. We have some friends with us. They've got a four-year-old daughter. And as we're down there, the kids are playing. The four-year-old runs to go meet up with my kids and immediately turns around and comes back to her parents just bawling because something's gone terribly wrong. And if you have a four-year-old, you may have experienced this awful thing that has happened that can literally ruin an entire day. She's got a splinter in her foot. All right, for a four-year-old, that's the end of the world. There's very little that can happen that can make you come back from that. So she comes up just crying to mom. Mom and dad sit down with her. They mess with it. They get the splinter out. And they say, okay, honey, this is why we want you to wear shoes when we're down here by the river, okay? So we put you down. We want you to get your shoes. And she goes, okay. And so they put her down. They look away for one second. And as they look away, the daughter runs straight back to the river. No shoes. And then just gets a foot full of splinters and comes right back going, that happened again. And the parents are like, are you crazy? You just are going to immediately disobey me right now? Maybe there's people that come to mind in your life that are in pain or have difficulty or in a place of frustration and and there's stuff going on in their life, and you're in a spot where you have the know-how, the resources, the background, the ability to help them. And so you help them, and you sit them down, you say, okay, here's what we're going to do moving forward. Here's how things are going to change. They go, yeah, 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 that sounds good. And you turn away for one second, and when you turn back, they're doing the same old thing, back to the same old habits, back to the same old community, back to the same old everything else, and you go, are you crazy? Are you crazy or am I crazy? Because I don't think I'm crazy. One of us is crazy right now. Have you ever felt that? Well, there's a story, and it's John chapter 5, where I think Jesus comes up and he heals this guy. And this guy has got the choice now. Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to do what Jesus wants me to do? Am I going to fundamentally change my life, the way that I approach every situation? Or am I going to return to the same old crazy situations, same old habits, same old place, just nonsense? And it's the choice you and I get to make every single day. So it's John chapter 5. We'll look at Jesus and we'll see how this interaction plays out for this man. So John chapter 5 verse 1 says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So it's just given us the situation, the place and the time. It's a feast of the Jews. You can think Easter. You can think Christmas. Businesses have shut down at noon. People have been planning the food they're going to eat all week. Parents have been traveling. Families have been moving. Everyone is coming together to the same place to praise God for all that he's done, all he's doing, and all he's going to continue to do. They're going to offer sacrifice together. They're going to draw near to God. They're going to praise him. So you can think it's this big holiday. People take time off of work. Lots of food is prepped. People who love the Lord are all coming together. And it's in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the place, as you know, that God has designated, this is my spot. My people will come and be here. My temple will be built here. You will all come and worship me here. It's where I will dwell with my people. My people will dwell with me. This is the spot. So God, Jesus, is coming to this place. 
when all the people who love God, who have a relationship with God, are coming together to the holy place. And Jesus, if you're going to think, who's the people he's going to go to first? Who's the people he's going to talk to first? You have everyone coming together. Who's he going to go to? The person he chooses is kind of alarming and shocking. Because look at what verse 2 says. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So here's some things it says. It's the sheep gate. It's not the people gate. All right, I don't know how many of you went to fair when 4-H was going on, but farm animals are gross. All right, so this was where anyone who's going to offer sacrifice to God, they bring all their sheep in. All their sheep with all their burrs and all their smells and all their poop and all of their pee is coming through this gate. And at this gate, there's an area right next to it that has a pool. It's not caveman pool. This thing is not treated with chlorine. There's no salt in it. It is this more, think of a cave, and at the bottom is this basin of water. And surrounding that basin of water is a large group of broken, sick, and dying people. People who cannot get up, who cannot help themselves. They can't decide to leave when they have to use the bathroom. And just you can imagine the smells of this place. Like it's painting a picture for you and me of that's gnarly. And you can imagine the sounds of just people, broken people crying out to God and weeping and, and begging God to heal them. And these people would be here day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. So of all the people that are coming to Jerusalem to draw near to God, to praise God, Jesus comes to this place. And here's the really fascinating thing about it for me. If you have an ESV Bible, you might notice that verse four is just gone. But an older Bible, like King James Bible, still has verse four. What it is, is when John penned the Gospel of John, he wrote it just like the ESV has it, without a verse four. But then it, when you and I are looking at it, you're like, why would anyone think they're going to be healed at this weird body of water? Like, I never once go down to the Rogue River and think, I'm going to find healing here. I normally find drunks. You know, like no one ever, I don't think anyone thinks that. Well, verse four was added as kind of a footnote of here's why. Well, what they believed, what the people of the time believed is if you would come here and you were broken, if you sat by the water at some points, randomly, an angel would come, stir up the water. And if you could get in the water first before anybody else, you would be healed and you could get up and you could resume your life. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that's how this worked. And so it's this pagan site. It's a place where people who don't even really know the God of the Bible come looking for healing. So it's the wrong place. So you have a broken guy in the wrong place, and this is where Jesus chooses to come and to offer healing. You know, for you and me, we are all people who have brokenness. We're all people who are in need of healing, and our help and our hope comes from a Savior who gives, gives it even in this kind of place to someone who's literally in the lowest place in their life at the worst location doing the wrong thing. This man, he's been here for 38 years, every single day. He's probably just decided, you know what? This is what life looks like. He can't take care of himself. He doesn't have a family. He's got no one to help him. And he's probably just said, you know what? This is my life. There's nothing changing it. There's little hope. This is who I am. This is where I'm at. But Jesus approaches him in verse six. And here's what he says. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This 
is what makes Christianity different from literally every other religion. This interaction right here shows you and I how vastly different Christianity is from every other religion. There's this Hindu prophet. His name is Ramakrishna. And here's what he says. He says, God has made different religions to suit different aspirations, times, and countries. All doctrines are only so many paths, but a path is by no means God himself. What he's saying is, God is the center of a wheel, and all religions are little spokes on that wheel. And if you believe enough in your religion, you'll eventually all get to the same God. It's just coexist. It's all fine. Let's all be good together. No worries. Jesus is directly contrary to everything that man just said. Where this guy says, a path is by no means God himself. Jesus say, actually, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Here's what every other religion says. The Hindus, they believe if you live well enough, if you've lived a good life, then in your next life, you get reincarnated to another higher state of being where you get a better life, better opportunities, better things that come your way. And if you live a poor life, if you make bad decisions, if you do evil things, you'll get reincarnated to a lower state of life. So to the broken man who's down at the pool, ah, you've earned this. You must have done something in a past life that's making God punish you. So I don't even have to worry about you. Or you have the Buddhists who they believe in karma, where if you do good things, good things will happen to you in this life. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you in this life. So anyone who's down on their luck well, that's their problem. That's between them and their bad karma. And anyone who's doing great or has lots of money, well, praise them because God must be blessing them because they're doing so many good things. Or you have the Mormons who believe that if you do good things, if you refrain from drinking the wrong things, if you wear the right underwear, you're going to be able to approach God. You know, all religions, they do this thing. They have the same thing in common. They're saying, if you're sincere enough, every time you're sincere, every time you memorize scripture, every time you do a good work, every time you tell the truth, you're honest, you're generous, you're forgiving, it's putting a plank down. It's building this bridge. Every time you're good, you're putting a little plank down on your bridge, and at the end of your life, hopefully you'll be able to reach God. And every time you're insincere, every time that you aren't forgiving, every time you lie, you you steal, you cheat, it's pulling a plank away. And so your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds if you want God to love you, if you want God to be happy with you. It's like Nicodemus. So he believed this in John chapter three. He is someone, he's a Pharisee. He's the top teacher of the time. He's someone all the Jewish people would look to and go, wow, that guy loves God so much. Look at how much he fasts. Look at how much he prays. Look at all the good works he's doing. Look how generous he is. He's so always forgiving people. He's the most moral guy around. And at one point he's sitting in front of Jesus John chapter three, and he looks at Jesus and in the most arrogant, pompous, even rude way, he looks at Jesus and he goes, Jesus, what would it take for me to to get eternal life? Thinking that Jesus will go, oh, Nikki, my boy, you've got it, dude. No, you remember when you gave to charity last week? That was the last one. You made it. You can rest from here on out. It's all good, buddy. That's not what happened. He goes, Jesus, what, what would I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus looks at him this lead Pharisee, and he goes, you? For you to get eternal life, you'd have to be born again. You'd have to completely start over. You have to start from scratch because your life, you have had so much sin. You've done so much things wrongly. You've done it with the wrong motives. It's all tainted. It's all tainted. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and there's nothing that you can do to get back to him. 
That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus is the only path to God because Jesus says, I'm gonna make a way for people to get back to God. I will take their sin. I'll take their brokenness upon myself and I'll give them my life. This interaction right here where Jesus comes to this broken man in the worst place of his life really fundamentally puts Jesus in a whole different category of all other gods. No other religion offers a God who knows the pain and the heartache of losing a son. No other religion has a God who knows what it's like to be betrayed by his best friend or knows what it's like to feel hunger or thirst or to be mocked, to be laughed at, to be accused of things you didn't do. No other religion offers a God like Jesus so that when his people who are broken and hurting can come to him, our God can say, hey, I get it. Do you want to be healed? And that's the other interesting thing that Jesus does here is he asks him, do you want to be healed? We have a God who comes to us in all of our brokenness, at our weakest, at our lowest point. Never once should you ever pray and think, I wonder if God cares. I wonder if God hears that. We have a God who loves us first. Jesus comes to this man and he says, do you want to be healed? He's sitting in the place that you'd expect people come to get healing from. Like if you were walking through and someone was saying, oh, this is the sheep gate and here's the pool and all these people are hoping to get healed, you'd put them in a category where you'd say all these people want to be healed. So Jesus, you're asking kind of a strange question. Obviously he wants to be healed. He's in the right spot, hoping to be healed. But maybe everyone there didn't want to be healed. I think there are people who were there who were there because they're lonely. They just needed someone to talk to. They need someone to just know their name. They need somebody to just share stories with. They need someone, they need a captive audience. There are people there who just wanted sympathy. They wanted someone to say, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. I'll pray for you. I'm thinking about you. I'm so sorry that happened. Oh, that's terrible. And there are some people who just wanted charity. They wanted people who were walking by with big hearts to open up big wallets. In that same way, in churches all over the world, you know people will come to church, the place where you should expect to be able to get healing, but not everyone is there looking for healing. Some people are looking for charity or sympathy or company because they're lonely. That not everyone who comes to church actually wants to give their life to Jesus and have their life fundamentally changed. I know this as being a young pastor, that when I thought when people called me, and told me that things were going wrong in their life or at their business or with their kids, that they wanted me to tell them what Jesus would have them do, and then they would do it. I, that's not always the case. Sometimes people just call me because they want to talk, even when they, they know they're wrong. It's like this. Hypothetically, imagine for a second if a husband and a wife had a disagreement and were fighting. Hypothetically, that never happens. Husbands and wives always get along about everything. So imagine they call they say, Justin, our, our marriage is, is in trouble. We need to talk. And I go, great. Okay, let me share with you all the how-tos. Because Jesus, what he says is, do you want to be healed? Not here's how-to. I would say, oh, good. Here's all the how-tos. Here's all the different ways that you can change your marriage. We could look at a chapter just straight from the Bible that will list out for you. This is what love is supposed to look like in your marriage. And anyone that you say, I love you to, your kids or even coworkers, you're supposed to demonstrate these qualities. You could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and you could just go through it. Here's all the how-tos the God's word gives us. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then so we could just go through those things. Okay, love is patient and it's kind. You know the people that you're closest with are the people it's hardest to be patient and kind with. Amen? Like anyone who's raised children, you know parenting is this daily struggle and battle and begging God for more patience. So there's one day a week that I've set aside just for family. It's Monday. It's my day off. I don't set an alarm. I wake up when the family wakes up. And every single Monday starts the exact same way. I'm in my bed and everything is right with the world. Everything's cozy. Everything is comfortable. It's good. And every Monday morning starts the exact same way. I hear the at my door. And then I hear the of feet. And then I feel on my face the and I just think, no, no, there's no way the sun is even up right now. And I peek open my eye and I see my three-year-old and he goes, dad, I want juice. And I'm like, well, daddy's sleeping. And he goes, I want juice. I go, okay, go to the living room. And he goes, yes. And as he runs out, he slams the door. So he wakes up everyone in the house, including the one-year-old. So I get up, I go out, I put him on the couch. I go into the kitchen, I get him juice. I bring him back the juice. And then I go back into the kitchen because I know there's a button in the kitchen that if I can press it, it's on our Keurig, I can get a whole glass of patience. It's going to help with the morning. So I just got to make it in there and press that button. But before I can leave the couch and get all the way to that button, screaming starts happening in the living room. So I go back and I'm like, what has happened? And I see my one-year-old covered in juice and so is the rug and so is the couch. And my son is going, Ledger got my juice. I need more juice. And that's just the first 15 minutes of Monday. The rest of the day is filled with stop hitting her, stop touching him. What do you mean he's breathing all your air? Why can't you share? All that sort of stuff. The day ends with holding the children down, brushing their teeth, getting a three-year-old in pajamas, which is a miracle in and of itself, and then finally forcing them to get into bed and saying, okay, I love you guys so much, but if you come out of this room, so help me, and you close the door, right? <laughs> and then I know for me, I sit in the other room, and I go, Jesus, I really could have been a whole lot more patient today. That really wasn't my best. God, I love these kids so much. I can do better. Will you help me? And out of guilt, once I know they're asleep, I peek in. I just look at their beautiful faces. You ever do that? You look at your kids' beautiful faces when they're sleeping. You're like, they're so precious and I love them so much. I could have been so patient. And then my daughter, she opens her eyes and says, dad, can I get water? And I'm like, go to sleep. How are you awake right now? Have you ever been there? Yes, parents. When you love somebody, the people you're closest to are the ones it can be hardest to be patient and kind with. But Jesus says, if you're a follower of Jesus and you say to somebody, I love you, you're saying, I'm going to demonstrate as much patience, as much kindness as I can possibly muster. And I'm going to continue to rely on Jesus to give me more power to be even more patient and even more kind. Here's some things that the Bible says love is not. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It's not looking at what every other person has, being on Instagram, being on Facebook, comparing your life to everyone else's going, why can't my husband look like that? 
Or why can't my wife do those things? Or why doesn't my, my children do that well in school? Why don't we have those, those toys, those cars, those boats, whatever it is, and becoming more dissatisfied and becoming more frustrated, becoming more upset with what God has already blessed you with? That's not what love looks like. Love is not irritable or resentful. This word, this phrase right here, is translated pretty okay in the ESV, but I really like it in older translations. It says, it keeps no record of wrong. There's a lot of couples that have a long list of wrongs that have been done to them because two sinners got married and they thought everything was going to be perfect. And then some of the sinners sinned and there was some anger that was expressed and there was some trust that was hurt and there were some boundaries that were pushed and there were some family events where some passive aggressive comments were made and then we can't let go of those things. And there's a lot of people, I believe, a lot of couples, a lot of the problems is it's just time to let go of the list. You know, after 20, 25 years, there's a long list of anniversaries that got missed, got forgotten, birthdays that got excused, all sorts of stuff. But you and I know our example of what it looks like to love comes from Jesus. And there was a list for you and me. Every single one of us had a list of wrongs, a record of wrong. And the Bible tells us Jesus took that list. He nailed it to the cross and he died on it. And when he rose from the grave, that list stayed dead You and I, as spouses, as husbands and as wives, we're called to take our spouse's record of wrong and die on it and say, I'm going to give up the list and I'm going to choose to have new mercies for you each and every day. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but instead love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Knowing that you married a sinner and knowing that There's going to be failures and shortcomings and hard times. When you're a believer and you're married, it means no matter what happens, it's not even just for those that you're married to, it's for any person you say you love, when they sin and the weight of their sin is hitting them, it means I'm going to bear that weight with you. I'm going to be present with you. I'm going to endure this with you. I'm going to hope the best in you until you absolutely prove me wrong. I'll be there with you. And finally, love never ends. The believer does not get to say, I don't love you anymore. Can't even be around you anymore. Because Jesus, our example, never ever says that to us. There's no point that we get to where Jesus goes, yeah, I'm done with you. You're out. So everything in there, that version of love, that definition the Bible gives of love, isn't that the love you want? Isn't that what you want in your marriage from your spouse? Isn't that what you want from your kids, from your parents, from your coworkers? Totally. And anyone in our community, if you actually lived this out, would look at your marriage going, man, I want that. I want that kind of relationship. When we get married, we better look like them because that's killer. But is that so much work? Oh my goodness, this is so much work. And unless you really want to change, all the how-tos don't matter. Unless when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? You say, yes, I want to fundamentally change my life. I want to fundamentally change the way that I talk to my kids, talk to my wife. The how-tos don't matter. So I believe Jesus would ask each and every one of us in this place of what do we bring here that's broken? What do we have that's in need of healing? And it can be a relationship. It can be a marriage, but it can also be financial and it could be emotional or mental or even physical. We all bring something that's broken. And I believe we have a God who asks us daily, do you want healing? Do you want me involved in that? Something is broken. It's not working right. Do you want to be healed? 
In verse 7, this is what the man replies to Jesus. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Here's what he just said to Jesus. Jesus goes, do you want to be healed? And he said, yeah, I'd love to get into the pool. Can you pick me up and bring me there? Could you grab me and bring me into the pool? How many people, they come to church because there's something so wrong in their marriage or with their kids or with their career. And when we come to church and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? We say, yes, I'd love you to fix my wife. You say, yes, I would love for you to fix the conflict at work right now. Yes, Jesus, I want you to change the thing that's a big problem in my life so I can keep living the way I want to live. See, what he's saying to Jesus is, yeah, Jesus, I would love for you to help me get my salvation, not, yeah, Jesus, I want you to be my salvation. That's the difference in what this man is saying right now. Maybe you've been there where you notice that when things are going really, really good, really, really well, your prayer life can wane. And you don't have to come on Wednesday nights, and you're not coming and plugging in, you're not serving, you're not being involved, you're not being around God's people. And then when things go wrong, it's a rush back to the church going, Jesus, put me back in the pool. I need that pool. I need to get back in there. Can you pick me up? Can you bring me back where I need to be? Because what's happening in my life right now really isn't working. And it can be lots of good things, too. Like, the pool's not a bad thing. The pool could represent for you and me, it could be your career, it could be responsibilities, it could be affirmation, it could be retirement, it could be status. It could be just about anything where we get it taken away and we go, okay, Jesus, I need that back. That's the thing that makes me significant, that makes me important, that gives me value. Will you get me back into the pool? It reminds me of this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It comes from 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, you have the Israelites, and they're at war with the Philistines. And they're battling, and the Israelites are just getting beaten. And so they come together, and they go, okay, what are we going to do to defeat the Philistines? And they go, well, in the past, God gave us this box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was full of really good things. It had the law in it. It had Aaron's staff in it. It had the manna that God had fed the Israelites with when they were in the desert every single day with. So it... It's a good thing. They said, whenever we brought that into battle, God gave us victory. So let's go get the box. And here's a problem. They said, it will save us. And so they go and they grab the Ark of the Covenant. They bring it to the battlefield. And the Philistines are filled with terror because they say nothing like this has ever happened before. A God has entered the battlefield. What are we to do? And the general says to them, you will stand and you will fight and you will die like men. And so the Israelites and the Philistines collide and the Israelites get absolutely spanked. And the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen from them. And when the Israelites go home, what they literally say is God has abandoned us. Because they forgot the Ark of the Covenant was full of really, really good things. And God did give it to them. But God did not give those things to them to become the Israelites' salvation. He gave that box to them so they would look at it and say, look at how God has always provided for us, how God has always had a plan for us, how God has always looked out for us and come through for us and fought our battles for us. If he did it then, he'll do it today. And it was to give the Israelites courage and strength to face the enemy. In that same exact way, we can look at the good things that God has given us. And we could say, that's the thing that saves me. That makes me significant. That makes me important. That's the thing that really matters. When really we're supposed to look at them and go, Jesus has given me that. Jesus has given me that relationship, those responsibilities, that career. It's, 
I should look at that and go, Jesus has come through for me so many times in the past. He's going to come through for me even today. Jesus isn't offering just to be this guy's leg healer. And he's not offering for you and me to just be a financial advisor or a marriage coach or a job promotion. Jesus is offering to you and to me himself, his whole life. Someone who understands what Jesus is giving to them by offering them healing is able to be extraordinarily generous, even more so than the richest man because he understands the riches of God's kingdom. Someone who understands God's grace and God's mercy, where they would be if it hadn't been for God intervening in their life, knows how to be forgiving and knows how to be generous with with compassion towards other people in rough spots more so than anyone else because they know their God. Psalm 43, I think, puts it so well where you have this man who's in a really hard spot in his life. He's in absolute turmoil. Everything is upside down. And here's what he says. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's in turmoil. He's in distress. He's in a bad spot, and he goes, my God is the source of my exceeding joy. My God is my hope. My God is the one that I can praise. He talks to God, and he calls him my joy. When we get healed by Jesus and we respond to him and we spend time with him, all the things that you thought, this is where I is the source of my joy and this is the source of what makes me complete and this is sort of what gives me satisfaction, it pales in comparison to what Jesus has to offer you and I. And so verse eight, this is what Jesus says to him. He says, do you want to be healed? The man says, yeah, I'd love for you to bring me to the pool. And Jesus says, verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Verse nine, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. He leaves the pool. This pool was the place that he was at every single day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year for 38 years. When Jesus tells him, get up, take up your bed and walk, Jesus is commanding of him a fundamental life change because tomorrow he can't come back and sit down with his old crew anymore. He can't come back to the place that he went to for every single day for 38 years. Jesus is saying, leave this place. Time for a new life. Time to develop new hobbies, new ways of talking, new ways to approach situations. It's time for an entire fundamental life change. In that same way, when you and I get healed by Jesus, when you and I meet him as our king, Jesus is commanding of you and I to make a fundamental change in the way that we talk to our spouse, the way that we raise our kids, the way that we do business, even the way that we talk to political, talk about political leaders and talk about politics. It's a fundamental change in every single aspect of your life because it doesn't make sense to go back to the pool anymore. Once you've been healed, you can't go back to the pool. Jesus is not interested in just healing this man's leg. He's interested in every single part of this man's life. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he took yours and my death and gave to you and me his life. And so that means when you go into situations, you go into circumstances, you're in your marriage, you're in talking to your kids, you're in your workplace, you're supposed to literally be putting on the life of Jesus and being Jesus in that scenario. 
That the Bible does not count you and I as citizens of this world, but they call us ambassadors of God's kingdom that we represent heaven. That's who we're called to be. We're supposed to be demonstrating that first Corinthians love in every single situation because that's what Jesus has called us to do. At night, I've been reading to my kids the Lord of the Rings books because if you put all three books together, you could get just one book alone of them that's just walking. Like it's super boring. So if you need your kids to go to sleep, Talk about a dwarf trudging through snow for half an hour, they're out, all right? But it's got really great points, and it's got high points, it's got battles, it's exciting, and at the very end of the last book, it's got this fascinating scene that they ripped out of the movie for some reason. And what happens is it's the end. The four hobbits are coming home, the ring has been destroyed, the enemy is defeated, and the hobbits are coming home to their place called the Shire. And as they start coming home, they see a group of enemies who are planning on invading the Shire and taking advantage of their community and destroying their people, people that the people of the Shire can't overcome. But these four hobbits, when the enemies look at them, they find something they didn't expect in hobbits. They find fearless hobbits with bright swords and grim faces, unlike anything else they'd seen before. And what happens is as the hobbits enter the Shire, they realize they don't fit into their community like they used to. Because these enemies who would overcome and just absolutely destroy the Shire, the situations that arise that would just cause fear and doubt and, and paralysis amongst their neighbors, these four are able to overcome and say, no, that's trivial. We can fix that. We can fight against that. We can overcome that. The things that used to spark the greatest joy in them, now they've experienced a better joy. The things that would cause them to feel absolute failure don't destroy them. And every day when they get together, they sing songs that the rest of their community doesn't know that reminds them about where they've been and where they're going and where they're headed. And when they're having really bad days, it brings them joy. And when they're having great days, it makes it even better. And at the end of every day, they go stand down by the river and they look over the mountains and they reminisce and talk fondly about a land that they want to see, that they've, they're looking forward to, and a king who's sitting on the throne who calls them friend. They don't fit into the Shire anymore because they know their king. They've experienced a greater joy. They know the greater picture. When you get saved by Jesus, it's that same thing. That the things that would destroy someone who does not know Jesus now is able to have resolve and go, that's not the end of the world. Losing my job isn't the end of who I am because I know my king and I know he's on the throne. I know he's got a plan and a path for me. Everything changes when you get Jesus, when you respond to Jesus's healing, that same story is supposed to become our story. And so I know there's a lot of things happening in the lives of every person in this room, that there's a lot of damaged relationships, there's a lot of disappointments, there's a lot of failures, a lot of frustrations, a lot of fears, a lot of difficulties, and things that can seem so daunting and impossible to overcome. And we can be like the man at the pool where we're looking at what we think is the solution, just saying, Jesus, if you can get me into that pool, then everything will be better. Then everything would be fixed. When really what Jesus would ask of you, do you want to be healed? Will you turn and will you follow me? Jesus offers for every relationship, every disappointment, every failure, every fear, he offers healing. He offers a way towards healing, and that's not to help you get into the pool, but it's to give you a new king with new passions and new desires, a new renewed life, a new way forward. 
And so if what brought you to church today is difficulty in your marriage or in your life or in your workplace, Jesus is offering for you healing. He's asking, do you want to be healed? Do you want to make a fundamental change to your life? And if you do, all you have to do is take of him. Every other religion says, do the right things, be cleansed, and you'll see God be good in your life. Jesus says, I'll be so good in your life that you'll want to follow me, change your life, and be cleansed. Now, if you are saved, if you've already accepted Jesus' healing, if you're already here and you know that he's your God, it's time to stop going back to the pool. It's time to forsake the old habits, the old methods, the old ways of talking to your spouse, the old way of raising your kid. It's time to put on the new man. Colossians 3, 7 through 10 says this. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The old man, the old self, Jesus takes away from you and he gives you a new man, a new life with new habits, new personality, new way of approaching situations, new hobbies. He gives you new life. We follow Jesus, a God who can do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. And that God gave himself to purchase broken, lonely people who had no other source of help or hope there's no amount of good work we could do to make ourselves right with God. But if you take of his healing, he does expect for you to call him king and have a fundamental change of your life. And I don't think anything illustrates that better than when we take communion. Because when you take communion, what you're looking at is Jesus saying, this is my goodness. Taste and see that I'm good. You don't have to be cleansed before you can take. You don't have to know the right Bible verses. You don't have to have the right things memorized or participated in the right traditions. You can take freely and eat of the goodness of Jesus, not because of the right things you've done, but because of how good our God is. And then secondly, you drink. You drink of what represents Jesus's blood, which has cleansed us and made us pure. Every other religion says strive for purity, strive for goodness, and then you can taste. Christianity says taste and see how the Lord Jesus is good and then be cleansed. So Jesus, we're so thankful that you're a good God. We're so thankful that we get to boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. I pray, Jesus, as we take today that we would see your goodness, even this day. I pray that as we see how good you've been to us, it would encourage us to draw closer and closer to you, to follow you more closely, and to call you Lord, to call you our King. Thank you for giving of yourself for us. Let's eat together. Jesus, we're thankful for the cup. 
and all that it represents, you giving of your blood to purchase us. And I pray, Jesus, in every relationship that we have, every situation that we're faced with, we will remember what purchasing us, what healing us cost you. And I pray through it, you'll give us the strength to love others the way that you call us to love, self-sacrificially and esteeming others as greater than ourselves because that's what our King Jesus did for us. Let's drink. So this morning, if you're in a spot where you need prayer, there is hard things going on in your life. There are situations that you just got to talk through and get biblical guidance on. You can come right up here and there will be men and women excited to pray with you, excited to talk about Jesus with you. And if you're here, and you want to call Jesus your Lord and your Savior, and you want to follow him every single day. You want to demonstrate not only for every single person here that you're on Team Jesus, but also all of the spiritual world, you can get baptized. And you can put on the jersey and say, I'm a part of Team Jesus. I'm going to make a fundamental life change. I'm not going to address any problem in my life the same way. I'm going to approach it all through the lens of what my God has done for me. You can get baptized this day. If you feel like you need prayer, if you feel like you need to get baptized, do not leave without those. Will you stand and worship our King in one final song?